Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased you've been able to join us for tonight's program. This is what happened with Christ and the Holy Spirit, that he worked in Christ when he, the Holy Spirit, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What happened to Christ, his glorification, his place at home in heaven, as exactly our destiny. If I told you that fulfillment, meaning and satisfaction in life comes from being who you were created to be, you'd probably shout, preach it, sister. It sounds fabulous, doesn't it? And what's more, it's true. What's even more fabulous and even more true is that the Holy Spirit is an active part of shaping us and enabling us to be who we were created to be. Not sure about that? Well, don't go away. There are some real gems in tonight's discussion. So let's join Dr. Corbett now as he continues getting to know the Holy Spirit in the Spirit-enabled life. We have seen that the Holy Spirit, unlike the views of some people, some religious ideas, the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not like Star Wars. It's not may the force be with you, may the Spirit be with you. It's not like that at all. It's not like the, the, the party spirit. It's it's not even an it the Holy Spirit is a he is a person and we've seen the book of Acts describes the Holy Spirit as a person we see in that very dramatic scene where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and paid a high price for that lie that you don't lie to a force you can't lie to an impersonal object you can only lie to someone whom you have an obligation to be truthful, and that's the Holy that that requires that the Holy Spirit is a person. So we've seen that. We've also seen that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit, who had been with the disciples, and there, there's a couple of references that we took out of John chapter 14, where he describes the Holy Spirit who has been with you. He then says, "Will be future tense will be in you," and so there there was something that was about to change when Christ ascended now interestingly in the pastor's desk that i sent out this week titled do not despise prophecy despite 2021 uh, 2020 which firstly there was a number of things that weren't prophesied like global pandemic you'd reckon on the prophet's spectrum that would have been a, you know sort of bumping up the richter scale i didn't hear any there wasn't any prophet sort of prophesying that so that's a gap i would have thought and secondly, the number of people in America in particular, strangely, who prophesied that President Donald Trump would be re-elected with a landslide, I think, with some of the prophecies, that clearly didn't happen. And then even after it didn't happen, there were people who were prophesying, but it still will. And I've, I've put that in the article there. But First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 20 and verse 21 says, Do not despise prophecy, but... Here's the but. Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Test all things. So we can see, and, and I've given four tests that I think we should use for prophecy. So test all things, hold fast to that which is true. And I want us to do that. So while I'm pointing out these blatantly bad examples of supposedly Christian prophecy, I don't want us to despise prophecy. Here's John Calvin in, in the early days who said, oh, the things like prophets and apostles and gifts of the Spirit, that all finished back then. And then as he went on in his study of Scripture, 
he said he couldn't find the supporting references to back up his idea. And his ideas began to change. And then blow me away. His private secretary, a bloke by the name of Beza, B-E-Z-A, is at his deathbed. And Calvin confesses to him the confusion that he's experienced because he came to realise that there is no verse in scripture that says God was going to withdraw the manifestation of the Holy Spirit resulting in charismatic gifts. Charismatic, chara. The charismatic, that word charismatic comes from the Greek word charis, which means grace or gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecy, gifts of healing, discernment, those things. And so he told his private secretary, Beza, so I've been asking God for them. And he said to him, something weird has happened. And Beza wrote it down just before Calvin died, what, what, what Calvin said. He said, I've started speaking in tongues. This is John Calvin, Lydia. He became a Pentecostal before he died. He, he wrote in his commentary on Ephesians 4, which talks about apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers, that it, it seems that, that God does raise them up from time to time. In fact, I put it in my, my doctoral dissertation was on the, the role of an apostle and, and just noting that. And I quote, I quote Calvin in that as well. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that we as a church, if, if John Calvin can come to recognise that the gifts of the Spirit are still relevant, that so should we. We should be open and we should be doing so. So I want to finish up today and I hope, I, I hope to achieve something. I hope that you go... Yes, this is a safe, this is safe, this is safe teaching because it's grounded in scripture, that's what I hope you do. And then I hope it causes you to say, okay, I'm in. Holy Spirit, have your way in my life. And I'm going to suggest to you that he may do that in you in a way that you may not recognise. In fact, I'm going out on a limb and I'm going to say he's already started doing it in every one of you. And you may be here today and you may go, oh, well, that's, I've never even become a Christian yet. And I'm going to go... I'm telling you, he started from the moment you were conceived to do something in you, a work of the Holy Spirit. And let me make that case. So becoming a Christian is only possible by a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't just sign the census form and say Christian. And I suspect that the reason why the numbers of Christians are declining on the census over the last, since 1950s or so, is because people realise that. Ticking a box on a census form does not make you a Christian. Saying that you are a Christian when you get admitted to hospital doesn't make you a Christian. Saying that your parents went to church, therefore you're a Christian, doesn't make you a Christian. Saying that you go to church, therefore you're a Christian, doesn't make you a Christian. In the same sense that a car goes to a garage and if you walk into a garage, you don't become a car. So here we have this statement by Jesus. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Here's what I want you to begin to see. The work of the Holy Spirit in the world begins in people before they have the work of conversion or salvation as we heard Karen mentioned over communion being saved from your sins for, for eternity that's salvation 
And, and not everyone's saved, and not everyone wants to be saved. You know, that, that horrible story that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus, the poor man. And the rich man dies, and Lazarus dies. And the rich man is in Hades, the, the, the Greek word for hell. And he can see across this chasm where Abraham is in a compartment of, the, of, of where the righteous dead go, awaiting what Christ was to do so that they could be released into heaven. But until that time, the, this man's in, in, in torment, self-torment, because he's now, got to, he's now got to live for eternity with regret. But the, the weird thing is, he doesn't ask to be released from there. That is so weird. Wouldn't you? But he doesn't. He actually asks, would you send, some of, would you send Lazarus over to me? Put him in hell so he can comfort me in hell. It's like selfish to the core for the rest of eternity. There are some people who won't accept God's offer of forgiveness and salvation. And it's my hope that you all do, that we all do. So, notice this, the work when he comes, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. A recognition that we've done wrong and we need forgiveness. Righteousness, that we're not right with God. Concerning judgment, that there is a judgment. We will all stand before the, the, the judge of the, the world and give an account of our lives because they do not believe in me. And that's not a mental assent. Yes, I believe there is a God. Belief in the Hebrew sense, a Jewish sense, is you commit your life to. That's what belief is. That the God... This is Ephesians 1.17, get this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, now I'll just, I'm pointing out these are the verses in the New Testament that describe what the Holy Spirit does in bringing someone to Christ. And this passage is profound because not only does it describe what happens in the life of someone before they become a Christian, it describes the moment of them becoming a Christian and then it goes on and describes and this is where it ends up. And that tells me that Christianity is a journey where you don't stand still. You grow and you continue to grow. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, notice this, may give you the Spirit. Now, this is straight out of the translation, capital S, which is a title of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, the Spirit of Wisdom and revelation and of revelation in the knowledge of him and that's what the holy spirit does we just read it in john 16 the holy spirit brings this kind of knowledge so this is happening before someone becomes a christian and here's what happens when they become a christian having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you so when you become a christian your eyes are opened your eyes are enlightened your hearts are enlightened the hope that is called which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints I love that I love that picture of being invited to a, a barbecue at, at the person who obviously is so incredibly wealthy and here the Bible describes God in language that far surpasses that and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So now something's happening in the believer. There's this progression of faith that the Apostle Paul is saying. It's not just a matter of saying, yes, Jesus, I want you to forgive me of my sin. There, that's done. Now I'm going to get on with my life. 
No, your life is now on a whole new course and you begin to grasp what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Remember, this is talking about the Holy Spirit in the believer. According to the working of his great might. Now note this, because Paul now is going to say, and this is what happened with Christ and the Holy Spirit. That he worked in Christ when he, the Holy Spirit, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And Paul will go on, I haven't got time right now to look at it, and he will describe that what happened to Christ, his glorification, his place at home in heaven as exactly our destiny. This is what awaits us. It is therefore, let's summarise what we've just seen, a work of the Holy Spirit in the soul of a person to open their blind eyes. And Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded their eyes that they can't see what they need to see in order to be saved. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit to open people's eyes that they might see Christ. It is therefore a work of the Holy Spirit in the soul of a spiritually dead person. And Karen read that at communion. Uh, Ephesians 2, we who were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. And it's the Holy Spirit that makes them alive. And Paul says, this is, what Christ, this is what the Holy Spirit did with the dead body of Christ, the literally dead physical body of Christ. The Holy Spirit brought Christ back to life, physical life. And that's what he spiritually does in us and ultimately physically as well in what will be the resurrection it is therefore a work of the Holy Spirit in the child of God. And we all, when you give your life to Christ, he becomes God, the Father, becomes your Father. That directs them into their God-glorifying destiny. And that's what I want to talk about now. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word now, as we look at what the Holy Spirit does in us, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our souls, open our spirits, and Father, I pray that we would begin to hunger and thirst and seek and covet the deeper and the greater things of the Spirit in our lives and in our life together as the church. In Jesus' name, amen. May your word take effect, Father. So this is the Spirit-enabled life. This is looking at what happens when a person is enabled by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to start with this statement. We're going to jump into, you might want to grab uh, Exodus chapter 31 and follow me in this, Exodus chapter 31. But the fulfillment, fulfillment, meaning and satisfaction in life comes from being who we were created to be. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we heard uh, from Steve Cloudsdale, um, a major in the Defence Force who was a chaplain, where he said that he's had people who were um, brigadier generals, generals in the, in the military, have spiritual experiences out on the battlefield of Afghanistan, Iraq and other places in the world where that spiritual experience has com just completely transformed their priorities, Steve said. And these high-ranking military officials, some of whom have become governor generals, 
some of whom have become the, whatever the word is, the, the head of the defense force right now after having a spiritual experience. And if you've watched um, Sir Angus Houston, who, anyway, well, I won't get distracted, but, but, but then he said this, that they've actually resigned their commission to become a chaplain in the army. They've gone from general to captain. It's a massive drop in pay, a massive drop in status to become a chaplain. We, we were sitting on a plane next to, um, I forget his name, Andrew someone or other, who goes, I think, to the Door of Hope, and he's a, he's a major in the army as well. And he was, he was telling us this. And he was telling us this completely puzzled. These, these, these high-ranking military men who've, who've resigned their, handed in their commission to become a chaplain, still in the army, but now they... And one of them told him when he asked them, why did you do this? He said, because when, as a soldier, I make a difference now. As a chaplain, I make a difference in people's eternity. Huh, how's that? So fulfilment, meaning, satisfaction in life comes from being who you were created to be. And it sounds like these men came to realise that they were meant to be more, and they did. They became more. They became chaplains and the like. So here's the example of Bezalel, and I want to show that you don't have to become a chaplain in the army. You don't have to become a pastor. You don't have to become a missionary. You don't have to become someone who uh, works in a, a parachurch organisation. You could be someone like Bezalel. Who was Bezalel? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Let's have a look. And reading verses 1 and 2, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence. Wouldn't you? Is there any, you know, is anyone sort of come up to the year 11, 12 exams this year? Would you like God to fill you with intelligence? Anyone ever crave, just right, you know, usually the night before exams, the gift of recollection? Well, here's a precedent with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiah, the son of Asamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So here's these two guys, and I'll point this out in a moment why that's important but Bezalel you know it's easy really he gets in this passage he gets two verses of a mention and then along with Ohalal Eliab um, and it'd be easy just to think oh yeah Bezalel whatever no 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 hang on a minute hang on a minute did you see how God described this person that he has a that the spirit has enabled him to work with metal, gold, precious stones, silver in craftsmanship. That's a gift from God. That's an enabling by the Holy Spirit. Huh. In fact, what was he to do? What we, I haven't really explained to you the context here. He was to make the, what's called the furnishings for the tabernacle. How important was the tabernacle in the Old Testament? Oh, about 60% of its content. About 40% of the language of the book of Revelation. The number of times God said to Moses, make sure this happens exactly as I've shown you on the mountain. And who's to do it? Bezalel. Do you think God's going to entrust some clown who goes, ah, it's close enough. 
And I don't think Bezalel was sloppy with things like that. He was precise. So let's consider Bezalel. Bezalel was enabled by the Holy Spirit to fulfill one of the most important missions of the entire Old Testament. Arguably, the first five books, called the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, really focus on this. It focuses on, on, on Israel coming out of Egypt, but then the rest of it is all about this thing called the tabernacle. And it is full of symbolic reference to Christ and his work. And it is so important. Just to give you a brief summary, it was a seven, about a seven-foot-high linen fence and that linen fence is referred to by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We will be clothed with white linen. Revelation talks about it. It's, it speaks of righteousness. 150 feet that way, whatever that is in English. 75 feet that way. I've already told you that it had to face, face east. It had to. Because whenever man rebelled, they went east. And this thing had one, two, three Gate posts, it had, sorry, one, two, three, four gate posts. It had to have that number because four speaks of all the earth, four winds of the earth, four corners of the earth, the four points of the compass. It speaks of all mankind. The invitation to come to God is to all mankind, not just to some. And the first thing you do is you come through that gateway. There's this three meter by three meter by a meter and a half thing made of bronze called an altar upon which this is the first thing you're confronted with the animal was put on there so the moment you come to God and you're starting to head west is you you lay your life on the altar that's the first thing and that's actually what you do have to do you have to surrender to God the next thing you come to this thing where it was made out of the bronze mirrors of the Egyptian women it was called the, the a wash basin James says we look into his word like a mirror and we wash our face what on earth does James mean we look into a mirror and wash? You don't use a mirror to wash, but you did if you get the tabernacle language. That's how they actually had to do it. And then you go into the tent of meeting, and then right at the back, once a year, they could go into the holy of holy place. And so all of this was super big deal, super big deal, and God chose Bezalel to do it. One of the most important missions in the Old Testament. Bezalel probably showed an early interest in making things with hand tools as a kid. Probably. I think God would have prepared this kid, Bezalel, from the earliest possible age. Bezalel was probably keen to, uh, keen to learn from others about how to improve his craftsmanship. He probably tried to make things. He may have seen his dad make things and he, he had a go and it didn't quite work. In fact, I'm going to take a guess that Bezalel probably experimented a lot. And he failed just as often as he succeeded because when you're trying to do something you've never done before, it's very difficult to do. Anyone notice that? And then probably you've got to work at it. And I know there's a whole generation of kids who are watching YouTube clips where people seem to have a go once and they get it done and it's like, yes, that's all you have to do. Have a go once. And if you can't do it once, you're a loser. Do you know how many takes it probably took that kid to do that YouTube clip? And Bezalel probably made lots of mistakes and God probably was okay with that. Keep going, Bezalel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And I don't know if he knew the Holy Spirit was on him. Bezalel probably learned how to get along with others who were doing what he was doing. And that's not as easy as it sounds. And that's why I said, look, I'm going to come back to the point that God said, I want you to work with Ohaliab from the tribe of Dan, not his tribe. 
Now you can imagine how the tension could have been if Bezalel hadn't learned to get along with others. Can I just say one of the greatest life skills you'll ever develop is the ability to get along with people. The enabling of the Holy Spirit often means, or may and often does mean, that it involves, excuse the language, hard work, (laughs) discipline and even disappointment. Now, you know, I do a bit of writing. In fact, I do quite a bit of writing. Every week I've got to do writing. Do you know what it's like to write something and then you get on your screen? And then you go, did I just say that? And then you go, I don't think I saved that. Anyone ever had that experience? I've lost so many documents. Oh, man. But this is what I've discovered. The next one I write is usually better than the first one anyway. And I think Bezalel probably learned that it was okay to go through the hard work, the discipline, and the disappointment of not getting things right the first time. You know, I think Bezalel is is an example of a spirit-enabled person. Do do you notice the journey that I think think he would have gone through to be that man that God would have pointed out in a group of people that some scholars estimate would have been uh, somewhere, well, we know there were 600,000 men, so what is that? Times that by three or four. So about 2.4 million people, God tells Moses... There's a, there's, a, there's a bloke here, bloke, you know, Aussie barbecue, it's in the Bible somewhere, that his name is Bezalel. He's, from the, he's, from, he, he's the son of Uri, whose father was Hur, who's from the tribe, you know, very specific, from the tribe of Judah. He's the guy to oversee the work in the tabernacle. Wow. So God had his eye on Bezalel. That's amazing. I really want you to get this. Whom God enables, he has his eye upon. And I'm going to show you that I suspect God has enabled you, Benny. He's enabled people. And you may not realise it, but you will. I think the same with Peter and his brother. Anyone know the name of of, uh, Simon Peter's brother? It's a great name. Andrew. I think the same for Simon, Peter, but his, and, and Andrew, his brother, they were fishermen. But notice what happened when, when Jesus encountered them. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So in other words, all those years of toil and hard work and all the lessons they learnt in catching fish, Jesus said, that was never about fish. And I think there are some of you who are going through stuff where it's frustrating for you. And I'll tell you right now, it's not about the thing that's causing you frustration. How about this? Paul, the apostle, I said before, who, who would want you know, the gift of recall the night before an exam? Do you know what it would be like to learn a language that no one spoke anymore and then have to pass all the exams and tests on it? See, Hebrew was a priestly language. It wasn't the language of the day in Jesus' time. It was almost a dead language and they and and Paul mastered it Hebrew he mastered Greek we know that because of the, the epistles he wrote he wasn't a natural Greek speaker well 
kind of. He was a Jew. But you notice what he says here, and we only get this one little reference in Acts 23 verse 3, where he makes a reference to the, the most influential, prominent teacher in Israel as his tutor. And I don't know if you've got a picture of what a tutor does to a student, but it is hard work. It is a hard relationship. And Paul said he went through that for his childhood. He had to learn how to be rigorous. He had to learn how to read in different languages, Latin, Hebrew, Greek. We know that because we have him in an exchange with a Roman soldier breaking out into Latin, turning from that Roman soldier in the temple precinct and speaking in Hebrew to a crowd and then going back and writing in Greek to Gentile Christians. Tell me how easy that is. Cinch. Thanks, Wendy. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And that's an expression that you probably want to get your head around. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Now, how did God use that? God used that's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org and select Holy Spirit Part 4 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, fulfilment, meaning and satisfaction in life comes from being who you were created to be. And the Holy Spirit has an irreplaceable role in shaping and enabling us to be who we were created to be. More from Dr. Corbett next week as he brings the Holy Spirit series to a close. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.